0: Hi, and welcome to some more mind rolling, with two mind rollers, uh, myself, David Silver, and Rabu Marcus. Okay, so where do you want to? Okay, I jump have an idea. At? I got a jumping point. Um, oh, good.
1: I mean, we've been talking about consciousness uh, and music a lot. Yeah, some psychedelics got thrown in there, but uh, I guess that's our our three. Uh, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Huh. Right. Um, So I think that I, of course, know of your experience, which is very direct with this particular human being. Right. But the intersection of, here we go again, that intersection thing, huh? Um, The intersection of music and spirituality or consciousness
0: really came to the fore for you with Bob Marley. Absolutely. And very fortuitously, actually, because I got involved with Bob uh, without any volition. I might have loved Bob Marley's music and reggae music in particular. But again, you know, once you let go somehow in life, you know, you don't have any career to speak of and you might as well give up. Something sometimes happens whereby you fall into things that you can't even believe. It's like a dream. And that was my with Bob Marley. I'd done a few reggae. Um, I directed some reggae concerts in 1975. And one was with Peter Tosh, who was in The Whalers at the Beacon Theatre in New York, and his band was the ultimate band. It was him and and Sly Dunbar, Robbie Shakespeare, Donald Kinsey, Al Anderson, which who were the primo reggae musicians outside of the whaler of Bob Marley's Whalers. And it was good. it was great. we We shot it, we had no money, but we did a good job. And Columbia Records paid for it. It was the first reggae thing anybody'd ever paid for. I was really happy about that. I got a phone call sometime later from a guy called Don Taylor, who was Bob Marley's manager. And he was very, very aggressive and insulting and said, I don't understand why you would do Peter Tosh. You would basically, you know, he's a number two thing. You know, why are you not working with Bob Marley? You know, and I understood that nobody was putting money into shooting these geniuses. So I was, of course, you want, can I work with Bob? yeah we yeah we wanted to do that. We don't want Peter to have a film, and not, that was what it was like. So I went to shoot uh, a film, an actual film using sixteen millimeter cameras, three of them, at uh, National Heroes Stadium in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, in the four hours before uh, the four hours before the concert, he was way up hiding in the mountains because uh two days previously, uh, four or five guys jumped into his room and his house in Hope Road in Kingston and started randomly firing machine gun bullets all over the room. I shot Bob in the side, shot Don Taylor, the manager, five times. I shot Rita Marley, I think, in the head somehow. Nobody died, but a lot of people got hurt. And it was some kind of horrible feud thing involving... Mm. Yeah, I remember. So that. there was this all this drama. I was there when this was going on. The first time I shot Bob then was in that concert he decided to do after being shot. First yeah. thing he did when he came on stage was show people the... Stitches in the side where the bullet had come. I was petrified of the whole thing. It was really scary. There was something going on whereby Bob was the target, and therefore I was. But we managed to shoot the. It was called the Smile Jamaica Reconciliation Concert. Remember, just before an election hmm. in December '76, and basically, in those days, and it's not that different now. Jamaican elections were a mixture of voting and shooting. You know, there were enforcers who used to go down certain streets and make people vote for one of the two parties, JLP or PNP. Bob's idea was to have a reconciliation, one love concert so that nobody would get hurt and everything. And nobody did get hurt except him (laughs) and his band. And that was the first time I worked with him, and we did about 20 songs on stage. After a while, and this goes to show how amazing the radiance of a spiritual experience is, I was scared when I got on the stage. It was frightening. There were 80,000 people in the audience there were hardly any lights because he didn't want light on him. And we, we got on, we ran on there. Half the whalers were there, half the band didn't come. A band called Third World backed him up. And there were 100 to 200 soldiers on the stage behind him. And we had to run on. And as we were running on, Bob, who was very conscious of everything when you were working with him, turned to me and said, get your cameras close to me. And I thanked him and said, oh, thank you, Bob, for that. And he went, oh, man, not such a big thing, you know, but if anybody shooed me, they would probably shoo you too. (laughs) That was his sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) But we went on, we shot it, and it was great. I worked with him many times since, uh, between 76 and 1980, when the last interview he did, we did, before he got really ill. More to the point, he was a truly uh, spiritual gentleman. Uh, if anybody ever talked to him as being, to, of him as being a star, he would admit to being a musician, but all he would say was that he was a messenger of God or a jaw, one of many, and that he felt a real responsibility to um, espouse love and, and togetherness and unity in Jamaica, which was a fractured country full of tribal war, you know, of one kind or another. So he was very um, committed to that. He liked having money. You know, he had a BMW at the time, which everybody laughed at because it was Bob Marley and the Wailers. That's why he got a BMW. And he was very successful made some money. Uh, but his main mission in life was to use this reggae music to, um, to unify and to stop racism. The Rastas were the least racist people I've ever met. had absolutely nothing, no anger in them about their British white oppressors. I had anger about it, but they just didn't know. It was. And it later when Mandela did the reconciliation in South Africa, you know, Bob was really involved in the Zimbabwe uh, uh, liberation. When Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. Bob Marley and Prince Charles shook hands uh, at the ceremony to release Rhodesia from British rule. So Bob had tremendous uh, sway in Africa at that time, and here too. And I just, I, even now, I can't believe I worked with him and knew him quite well. It's just, it was a beautiful thing.
1: Well, I've never seen anything as beautiful as that recording of him playing the Nashville guitar, doing Redemption song over and over and yeah. over again. And each time it was more present and more
0: yeah. visceral. Uh, boy. We did it nine times. But coming in from the cold, we did 10 times. So we did 19 separate versions of two songs in a hotel room when he was really ill. And um, each time he would ask me and, and the other rosters, is that all right, you know? And everybody immediately would say, yeah, it's great, Bob's great. And he'd go, no, not good enough, and do it again. And this mm. was when he was ill in a hotel room, for goodness sake. It wasn't even recording. He is a perfectionist because he believed that he should show ultimate respect to his, to his Lord and Creator by never doing something shoddy, as he put it, mm. or shabby, as he put it, too. So his recordings were, if you listen to them now, they're astounding. They're perfect, hmm. and yet yeah. they still have you know some spontaneity. Yeah. Oh, we could go on for ten hours about Bob. It yeah. changed my life in many ways.
1: Yeah. Well, no, that's a great example of that. Uh, I mean, Bob was also a rascal. I mean, you know, I've heard stories of him going uh, when they didn't play his record when he first started out. He went with a gun over to the studio and say, "Play the record," you know. So he was he was a lot of things, but yeah. certainly I'll, I'll tell you even. My own experience, which is laughable next to this in terms of, you know, (laughs) but except it ended up in the same place of getting the same thing from inside his guts and into mine. Mm -hmm. And um, I had spent a number of years um, in a spiritual scene around that time that uh, we weren't getting high. We were being good yogis. Then Bob came to town and... (laughs) And we said, Oh God, we got to, we just gotta go down to the garden. You know, we gotta see him. And but who could go see Bob Marley straight? You can't do it. Impossible. It's just a terrible <laughs> thought. Um, yeah. and I happened to know somebody who had this incredible tie weed, you know, tie sticks. Remember that in the They were the days? most powerful thai things. Yes. You have to be careful not um, to be absolutely. walking, never mind yeah. driving. Yeah. Meanwhile no. they had Bob had gotten some from them, I heard from a friend oh, as really? well. Yeah. So he had it, we had it. <laughs> And uh, one of us uh, was going to drive, actually, my wife at the time. She said, I'll drive. And she said, and I'll make you the cake. I'll make you brownies because you don't want to be, you know, you want to not no, smoking no and smoking. shit. You haven't smoked in ages, so eat it, you know. I, oh, very good. <laughs> she took the buds instead of just crushing the leaves, which is what you do, you know, the lesser part because it's so powerful. Yeah. She took the actual buds, crushed them up, and put a lot of them in this cake. And we all decided, this is very good stuff. This tasted so good. And on the drive down there, we all had a couple of pieces each. And there was, a you know,
0: we
1: were a couple of carloads of people. It was like, you know, a dozen people that were sitting together at this concert who all had not smoked in uh, at least a couple of years right, or something, right? So, um By the time Bob came on and there was an opening
0: act... The Commodores, I think,
1: wasn't it? No, it was a guy who used to finger-pick a guitar player, incredible um, that he could play with both hands. He was finger-picking with one hand. Anyhow, it was incredible.
0: Try and remember this, okay.
1: Um, By the time Bob got up and started singing, right? we had people puking in the aisle... (laughs) Oh, my goodness. People oh. couldn't stand up. Other, my, the, my guy who was a friend who was sitting right next to me looked up at me and said, when's this going to end? Oh. It was a total acid trip. I mean, because the stuff was so powerful. Yeah. When And Bob was just more into it and more into it. I was like part of his molecules yeah. and the I3 behind him and the whole yeah. pulsing. It was just pulsing. The whole <laughs> garden was pulsing. And I, I mean... In and out, one breath in, one breath mm. out, the whole thing. I mean, he was an absolute shaman, mm. and he and he connected with every last person in this thing. Mm. Uh, the only problem we had <laughs> was that when the song started crescendoing, everybody would stand up, and mm. we couldn't move (laughs) the guy me and my friend next (laughs) to me we would hold on to each other and sort of pull each other up (laughs) it's insane and that was my that was i think yeah the only time that i that i saw marley was that night at madison square i have a
0: you know i have another one which is directly connected to that one time for some reason bob wanted to open an office in new york separately for Tough Gong Records, which is his own record company, apart from Island. He was on Island Records, but he had his own record company. And it's boring to go into it, but for some reason I was the person that was representing who would share the office with him. It was going to be Danny Goldberg, myself, and Bob Marley. <laughs> and we found an office in the Empire State Building, because that was the only building he'd heard of. So that was good. And then I, I, I went, it was cheap too, and then I went to Jamaica with Earl, my friend, to meet with him. So we get to Hope Road, Kingston, which is where his house was, and arrive in the taxi and get out, and he's sitting on the stoop. It wasn't the stoop of the actual house. It was the courtyard outside the house, and there was, like, gates, and he was sitting at those gates on the stoop uh, with some other rasters. So I walk in, and he greeted me, and I didn't quite know what to do with go into the house to stay there. I stayed there, and he said, sit down. And he said, uh, well, you know, he you got off the, you know, off the plane, i build a spliff, man. and build a real nice spliff for you, man. And I thought, I, might die, I died, gone to heaven. Bob Marley is building me a joint to smoke with him. So I was all, like, euphoric. Then he started making this thing. And the, someone <laughs> brought him the, the, the herb. And it was like a full ounce, it looked to me. You know, it would last me, like, <laughs> six weeks. And he literally took it and crushed it in his hand and made at least, at least <laughs> half of it. Was in this one, supposed it was shaped like a pyramid, like a little hole at one end and a big, vast trumpet. Other, it was surreal. And then he gave it to me, you know, and I lit it, and it was like lighting a cigar. There was this huge red glow came out of it. <laughs> and I took one puff, and then I don't remember anything after that. It was like that, it was like acid. The environment, Bob Marley, this fog. And then I start smoking it, and then he says to me, come on, man, this good herb, you know, I mean, smoke it, man, smoke <laughs> the whole thing, man. <laughs> and I said, "Bob, I, mean, uh, I, I, I can hardly speak, really. <laughs> I don't have any words coming out. Come on, man, you'll transcend that, uh, you know. And I did, I smoked it with him. Mm. And I, then I was, like you, I was unable to walk <laughs> and was, you know, paralyzed and yeah. couldn't speak for a few hours, right. but I was with him. That was worth mm. it. I mean, that just made me, it's the most, you know, no, he wasn't. A guru, he was a shaman, as you put it. Hmm. He sang and acted. Yeah, but it was all about lovingness. It wasn't about destruction or let's go fight the white guys and everything. No, songs like Exodus were very strong, and as you put it, African liberation was totally important to him. I
1: remember at one point in the concert when it was really out of it, after you start going off the other side, going, you know, coming down a little bit, a little. You know, <laughs> marijuana certainly does that. You get a little bit of duality and paranoia going on. So he was, at that point when he was going down, he started singing, Is this love? Is this love? Is this <laughs> love? And I'm I'm thinking to myself, Oh, shit, I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know if it's love
1: or <laughs> confusion. <laughs>
0: you know, we're talking about the middle of the 70s, really. And, and something that occurs to me is uh, the reggae the music was really a very high form of music it wasn't all like that some of it was rude boy stuff and about murder i shot the sheriff for instance doesn't sound too satvic, really but (laughs) but you know it's interesting for me to realize that concurrently with reggae music was the punk revolution and disco because by 1978 or something, disco was the big music, you know, and it was the exact opposite contradiction of any kind of evolution music of the 60s. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was just anathema to all of us. I'm sure it with you. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, mm. okay, I might as well give up. But reggae music was pe- was rolling along at the same time, and a lot of college students, a lot of Caucasian people got into it. And it's still now, up to this day, a genre of great you know, popularity in America and Europe and everything. It it stayed. It never went to the heights like the Beatles or something. On but the it, other it hand, it stayed,
1: you know. On the other hand, yeah. there's Bob Marley. Yeah. And then there's everyone else. Yeah, to I some mean, extent.
0: Although there were a in, lot of in great a general centers, way, centers. way. There were some great geniuses. Bunny Whaler, absolutely. Gregory Isaacs, Burning Spear. But they weren't Bob. Bob was the one. He, you know, it's just
1: was. incredible how, how much
0: above yeah. the cut above everybody that he was so yeah. um but you know what i must say yep. he was you know I, i've heard so many stories about it, the way uh and this is not supposed to be in any way a comparison obviously when maharaji was the least displaying of gurus and uh, meretricious there was nothing there he never wanted to push himself or you to push he didn't need any or was not interested in a weird kind of way bob was like that he didn't care about what his records sold. He like to have money. He didn't like to talk about himself, and he didn't think he was anything. He thought he was a good musical arranger. But his real sense of self was that of being just a, a channel for the, the better, higher thoughts. For, for Ja, as he put it, you know, one love. Hmm. You know, Ja love. That's what he was about. And, but he had no, he had an ego. But it wasn't in any way oppressive to you when you were with him. Mm. I was just this person with mm. him. He was surrounded by photographers and and psychophants, and you know. But you could tell that he was just mm. that wasn't his life. Mm. He was a true messenger mm. shaman, as, as you put it. It's a shame. But
1: just to make some clarity here, clarity. Um, Bob had a sense of his of himself that was more connected to his soul than who he was as a famous person. And that is an enormous accomplishment for someone who gets fond on, like, like he did. Yeah. Um, but I don't, as far as Maharaji is concerned, <laughs> there's no sense of self. No, someone you know. always, wait, you know. Yeah, no, it's a whole different. <laughs> that's not, you know. That's, totally that's, different.
0: Yeah. But, you know, it did, it did signal to me that, again, the music was, you know, the music was still there, and it was, it was the, for all of us, the great gift. And I don't, I can't speak after that. Bob died in, in May of, of uh, 1981, and there's still great reggae music and everything, but there's nothing like it. It's, it's almost as if we're only allowed a a small, rare number mm. of of spiritual guides in that in the world of showbiz music. You know? Right. It's not. Right. There aren't no, millions, no, I mean, there's not. He's there rare.
1: There, there's absolutely, no. but. Uh, very fortunate that uh, you you were able to have that experience, which informed a lot of the work that you continued to do. And, for that matter, uh, myself, uh, that was Oh, my, that was with my, that you was even
0: my. more than me, because you did so much work. did a lot of work with world music and trance music and, and kirtan music, uh, which was starting to develop your ability to collate it and find it at the highest level, the most quality, you know, from Akbar Bakan to... to um, I don't know to everybody. Uh, that was beginning to percolate. Well, at that time wasn't it? I mean, it was percolating at that time, but
1: it it started. It started in that period in India, and now we're banding about names and people, and we're, <laughs> we're maybe not giving great references. And um, even when we when we speak of Nimkarali Baba Maharaji, mm. um Maybe we're assuming too much, but, and even when we're speaking of Ramdas, but I think we've given, you know, a pretty accurate reading. Ramdas came out of Richard Alpert, you know, and Tim Leary and went to India and got transformed. So I think we've explained that. And his guru is is this, uh, what's called in India, accomplished being, a being that is not living within any boundaries of time and space, but yet still is in a physical body uh is a very special being and there was a number of them last in the last century and some of us were fortunate enough to to meet that being but um there one of you know again this is my trip sort of music meant so much to me from the days of of Dylan when I was in my teens mm. you know through the whole psychedelic movement through rock and roll through being involved in the radio business so but what started to change for me is that in India, and, and I guess the genesis of it, one day we were hanging out with uh, Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji, and some of these Hare Krishna guys came with uh drum and instruments, and they were doing some Hare Krishna, and as soon as they left, Maharaji turns to Krishna and pulls some money out from under his blanket, Right? It says get get out to the market now and get some instruments get some drums you got to do this now it was like <laughs> it was like these people came and now you get out there and do this thing and basically although it was a funny scene because it involved the hari krishna people and he was jiving to some degree right the westerners doing you know all of that stuff it was the genesis of krishna das being given the um baton shall we say Mm. to do to learn what chanting really is and how it can be an incredible path especially for well they say for everybody in this age the name the repetition of the mantra using music is the easiest or just the repetition of mantra not even kirtan but for the west it is entirely something that is um, so beneficial because so easy, and we're so used to uh, getting off, so to speak, on music. So this, so he started it, and he, he was given, as I said, you know, the baton to take it, and he got those instruments and he started learning them, and then we, some others of us, now Jai Utah, who was in our group, he already was a practiced an uh, incredible uh, Indian musician who was a student of Ali Akbar Khan's from, from that time, and it came over with... So he, he had it from a, a, a different uh, perspective that he was an accomplished musician. In Krishnanas's case, although he had been a musician and, and, and you know
0: played in bands and so on and so forth. Um, the Jeff Cagle group was... I'm telling you, he, when he gave me that tape years ago of his Long Island band... Yeah, that I, was... Um, yeah, I, it was a great band. Yeah, no. it wasn't as if it was some. I thought they were a pretty
1: great. It was a band yeah. that became famous. That he was Blue almost, Oyster. The, yeah, Blue Oyster Cult. Right? right. So that he was almost the lead singer, but he met Ram Dass. And that's but I think part. this band
0: was much better than. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Jeff Kegel yeah. group was a
1: terrific. So, band. Yeah. whatever it is, he yeah. he came back with this thing and other people. Of course, Bhagwan Das is another one, and he, you know, he learnt that stuff, yeah. predating, and then Jai, of course, started doing it as well. So for and I did it as well, and I did you know play with Krishnas. So we would sing together just for ourselves. It was nothing. It was many many years later when we he and I had the record company Triloka that we actually started to um, think of doing it in a way that could be presented to the public. At least he you know he did in a you know. Um, but at that time, we were all just doing it, you know, in our houses and so on and so forth, and learning more and more, graduating from two-string instruments called the nectar to harmoniums and so on. And some of us had, you know, taking piano lessons. So we—that was a huge another change, transformation of using music that was beloved. Now we, you know, I went to eight billion. You know, Springsteen concerts at at that time as well. It wasn't like one thing was given up for another, but this was certainly integrated. And in Krishnadsen's side of things, he started using Western chord changes that had, you know, real chorusy, poppy kind of feel to them, yeah. as he started many years later to well he, as we were inventing copying melodies from, from India and then kind of changing them so they you know because we were doing we were westerners so um, so that started to get receptivity now fast forward to now I mean there is eight billion people <laughs> doing kirtan chanting in yoga centers throughout America and Europe for that matter. Yeah. And uh, it is, I mean, it's a, a you know, huge cottage industry, yeah. you know? I mean, it's really, so mm. that certainly became a marker, you know, that we brought that out of India. Now, you know, I heard Allen Ginsberg doing Hare Krishna. I went to the Hare Krishna temple. They were doing Hare Krishna. Mm. So it wasn't mm. like we didn't bring it. But certainly when you talk about Bhagavandās, Jai Utal and Krishnās from that group, mm. they are people that were were... Entirely important in in spreading that when the whole yoga movement started in the 90s in the United States, especially. Mm-hmm. So, but from the that point in the 70s, we that started to get integrated, and that practice has become entirely important in uh, in yeah. um, in America. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, it's. Well, you know me i may look at a little bit on the new age part of it <laughs> this is so. to say the least yeah well we won't go into that no, because no no we won't be negative no but uh i could be though i mean some of it could be fun but um in in truth there's still you know as i'll tell you a story actually yeah a friend of mine i was in india we were with maharaji we were Driving uh, in a rickshaw, going to a bank to get some money. And we passed those huge Bollywood theater, we passed the theater. And it was a movie at the time that was playing. uh, It's hard for me to remember the title. Um, But basically, it had a song that went, Dhammaradam, Hare Krishna Hare Ram. And basically, and then. It was about Dammaradam means light up your hash pipe, basically. And, they'd, and so the kids outside the theater would see a Westerner and they'd always jive us, Dammaradam, you know, and they'd make the sign of smoking a chillum or uh. something, right? And I was with this guy and th- I said, Jesus, get these, these punks out of here. God, damn. you know, and I was like that. And he said, what, are you crazy? Hmm. It's maha It's Mahamantra. It doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> and so I always think of that when I wow. think of all these people that are doing what I would call new agey kind of uh, kirtan. But, you know, they're expressing it in the way that's important to them. And, and
0: yeah.
1: um, you know, but I will again proselytize mm. a little bit here that, uh, mm. you know, between Krishnadas and Jai, you're talking about people who are doing it for the right reasons. They are doing it for their practice. They are not doing it to entertain people. Okay. And yes, the idea is you get a little bored in some of these things. You know, the repetition, the trance, yeah. you know, that does happen. So back to, to the point here, this was elemental for um, the growing uh, learning of practices to be able to straighten us out. And that were useful to us in America. So certainly, I, I, I mean, you encountered
0: it as well. I did. I mean, I was always from the start because we started doing call and response, kirtan with Hilda, my teacher, in nineteen seventy, early seventies, and I'd never, uh, I'd never done it before. And it was hard for me to get into because it had a bit of a... For me, it was sort of like being at a girl guides meeting or something at first. I was very (laughs) disdainful about it. What am I doing? This is, you know, like Sunday school. I soon, thank goodness, got over that and realized that it was a... Um, a building experience as we did more of it and got used to the words and the whole feeling it started to have real power in our lives and made us all feel much more relaxed in those meetings and much more in loving towards each other and it is very fundamental in changing the kind of cynicisms and sort of selfish um, you know remarks mm-hmm. about this being good this being bad we knew early on in the Kirtan world that this could only make us feel better. This could only lighten our load in some way because of its. It captures you, right? So, I remember, but you know, before Krishna was doing it in a more traditional way, I suppose, because Hilda would do it like that. But uh, when Katie started doing it, uh, I knew it was just obvious to me that eventually a lot of people would would be entranced. Attracted, yeah. and it would do something that they wouldn't even know what it was doing. Because he says yeah. sometimes, doesn't he? That you know. It's just stay with it, just stay with it, and it will be good. It will, it will ameliorate you in some way that you may not even know till later. I know it happens to me all the time. Go to a kirtan. Maybe I get bored. Maybe I'm not in a good mood. Maybe I'm irritable, distracted, whatever. But then on the way home or at home, I feel a different way. It just seeps into your, into your bone marrow, and it's very simple. He sings, you respond, and eventually it becomes second nature. What other music is that interactive, it's that much of a service to the audience apart from inspiring you that's what Springsteen concert inspires you mm-hmm. and so on but you're not in the band you know and you don't want to be in the band there is a little call and response there with Springsteen isn't it? <laughs> 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 and there there is this you well, know uh, I would say do
1: um, uh, <laughs> I remember one time Krishnadas did a record, and Sting had sung on one of his records, yeah, right? If you remember, I remember, in the early days, yeah, it's great. And you know, they had some some friendship, and I think Krishnadas sent him a copy of a record he was about to put out. Oh, and uh, and Sting was with a couple of people that were mutual friends with, between Krishnadas and Sting, so they they reported to him what happened. He was playing the record, and after every song, he'd be laughing. He'd really? laugh. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> They were like, what are you laughing at? He's like, hold on. I want to hear the whole thing. Gets to the end of the thing. Says, this is incredible. This sounds like my friend Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> and it was more about the heart thing. you know, It yeah. was the heart reaching out and grabbing mm. people. And that's really what this is all about. Mm that's what the efficacy of is is this music combined with these mantras that are elemental in just naturally ch- doing what they do without you thinking about anything there's nothing necessary to think and and then you know as when you think you're you know as soon as you realize you're thinking you're back to the mantra so it's an incredible practice but it's an incredible heart opener and it does something it absolutely does something Mm -hmm. so hopefully are we preaching this is like
0: no but i mean maybe i feel like i'm preaching (laughs) no you're not but you're not doing a promo for it but it is it is worth it you know well, I, I mean, guess we're
1: talking about stuff that rent. we enjoy, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean that, no matter how helped. many times I've sung Shri Ram J. Ram either with Krishnas or any other Kirtanwala, it's always fresh. I mean, you don't say, oh, he's singing that song again. You could have just four songs. I mean, Sharda, who does Kirtan, who I go to see, she basically only sings about six things. So you got six. About yeah. that. And you can't so, wait to get this, to the one every time. It doesn't matter. It, yeah. it just somehow... It's very, very, very um, elevating every time, relaxing, elevating. But it's not it's not like a soporific. It's not putting you in bliss or anything. It just if you stay with it no throws away the distracting mm-hmm. thoughts. They just go away. You know, as Ronda says I mean, you edge them away. Mm-hmm. Because of That's a good thing. You know, edge. I like that. Um, so there's not much
1: to say after this, but, you know. It's like, what do you talk about after, these? after suggesting this? Well, no, I mean, I think you know what is uh, you know, mind rolling is again. We we keep trying to define what this mm-hmm. represents to us, and I think that here's a good example because mm-hmm. when you are right within the chant, and mm-hmm. and it's just like nectar coming off your tongue every time that name is repeated. It encompasses open heart. It encompasses devotion, surrender. Things that, of course, in the West we don't want to hear about, but we're, we're going to talk about them because it's uncomfortable yeah. for everybody. And it was way uncomfortable for me. I mean, uh, I can tell this lovely story. Uh, maybe I'll just do it quickly because it, it, yeah. it refers to this. Yeah. I've, I, was, I, I went to Swami Mukta. You talked about Swami Muktananda. I went there. I went to the ashram. I was meeting Ramdas. He was going to tell me where to go to meet Maharaji. So I go there, but he isn't there yet. But I get there and you got to go see the guru, I go to see Muktananda and like I see everybody's bowing down and touching his feet. I'm like, "What?" I, I mean, I might have known that people do this, but it was my first time in India. I don't get the feeling I want to do it. I don't want to, you know? It's yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. So I, but I do it. I feel weird and so on. And meanwhile, he's having me, you know, the place where I was assigned to sleep, because I'm going to be there for a few nights, is across the road on an empty lot. And I have my cot and, you know, I think it's where people go to poop. I mean, honestly, it was really embarrassing and and. Quite horrible. I yeah. mean, you know, I'm just, you know, my first few months in India. Mm. So, and then I go back the next day, more, oh, God, what am I doing here, you know? <laughs> then Ramdas shows up, and I go, what is this thing, this bowing down thing? I mean, what's it all about? He said, well, it's just the light inside you honoring the light inside them. Simple. Mm. And if you have any stuff about it, it's good to be mindful and aware and just, you know, process it. Again, mm. I, I go back... I'm about to go up to see Maharaji. He finally lights up a little bit, uh, Muktananda, and and he says, okay, good, go to your, you know, go. And actually, I I felt like he kind of helped, you know, speed my way up there. Anyhow, bottom line, I finally get to see Maharaji for the first time. He comes out a door. I'm sitting there. I mean, I just threw myself and flipped all over uh, on the floor, just went over. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking about anything it had nothing to do with that so mm-hmm. you know so the we need to talk more about what what that is there's a lot of fear around that for many people um and uh listen i know people who went through all of that and are now sort of backwards you know have lost that mm. thing which is mm. it comes from your guts of just honoring who you really are and that's really
0: what it's about who is it said Following the Dharma, the spiritual path, is like walking on the edge of a sword. Somebody said this. Mm. Yep. Do, do you know? But I don't know. It, I, I would have always thought that's not true, that the more you do it, the easier it gets. I mean, but that is not the way it goes. It, it is always a challenge, because you've got these old ancient tapes playing, and yep. it, it, sometimes they come back and say, what am I doing here? What's, yep. what, what is this? It's crazy. But the more you do it, it's called practice, right? So... To me, simple-mindedly, I've always said practice is practice. It's like rehearsal. In order to play the violin, you have to rehearse. You can't just instantaneously play. And that's what I found, that if I drop my practice in some way, and I'm not any kind of exemplar, but I do try, and, uh, you know, if I just stop doing certain things, meditating, or whatever it is, for a protracted period of time, you have to sort of start again. It's harder, but you have to keep doing it, or it goes away. It fades. It doesn't have to go away. And you have to then do an extra amount of it to get it back. That's been my experience at any rate. The practice is practice. It's not, it's it's an evolution, you know. And those early epiphanies that came through LSD and the music and whatever, 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 they were good, but they didn't last. And so you had to learn to practice. In order to yeah, it, or
1: what does Sharon say in one of these things? Uh, you tell me you have to get u- learn how to get used to it.
0: Yeah, that was the orig- one of the original Buddhist sort of interpretations of practice. It's getting used to it. So as you do it more and more and more, it becomes more a natural thing to do, mm-hmm. and it becomes less and uh, any less um, the strange thing and more. The central thing, natural, yeah, it but is it is natural. a process of getting used to mm. it, and it 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 takes time. It's not, and and Krishnada says too all the time that you know we're so want things like instantaneously, yeah. and and this is one thing you don't get instantaneously, or it doesn't stay. You can get something fantastic like we did with LSD and everything, uh, but it doesn't stay, and nobody has ever contradicted that really. I mean, all this haraskas thing, and all these things that are going on now about various. That's great, and I'm all for it being done, um, you know, the right way, but there's still no getting around the fact that we have all this within us, so why do we have to keep using something to get to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit of a lecture, and I you ap- did. I apologize for that. <laughs>
1: yes, that's absolutely lecturing, <laughs> and... Uh, So we're sorry that uh, we've gotten into pontificating, lecturing, and otherwise um, glorifying our past. No, Uh, go go
0: straight to Howard Stern on Sirius (laughs) FM and clear yourself of
1: (laughs) that. We're going to try and do better (laughs) as we we go forward, but uh, we are mind-rolling.